Would you join with me in prayer? Lord, God, we praise, we glorify your name. Um, Lord, it's so good to just be here together in community to worship you together with our church family. So, Lord Jesus, we just prepare our hearts uh, before you now. Lord, we want to open our hearts to hear your word so that, Lord, through the declared word, we can be made new, made more into the image of Christ. And, Lord, be drawn into your presence together. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. If you joined us last week, we started our Advent campaign. Our Advent campaign is called The Life Revealed. Okay, this is a phrase taken pretty much directly from 1 John 1, 1 through 4, which is going to be the text that we're camping in throughout uh, the whole month of December uh, leading up into Christmas. So last week we talked about, well, whatever, let's just read it, and then as we go, I'll talk through it. All right, 1 John 1, beginning here in verse 1, John writes, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was revealed, and we have seen it, and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard we also declare to you, so that you may have fellowship along with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Okay, last week we talked about how the main idea of this passage is here in verse 2, where John writes that the life was revealed. The life was revealed. And we said that that life revealed, it doesn't solely refer to the incarnate Christ, like John does at the beginning of his gospel, where he refers to Jesus as the Word. But here, he, he's using it to refer to not only the incarnate Christ, but also the meaning of the incarnate Christ in his life, his death, and resurrection. So he's referring to the whole of the gospel, is what he's talking about. God's plan of redemption that ultimately is centered on Jesus and what Jesus has done in the incarnation, in his teaching, his life, his death, and ultimately his resurrection. And so that life revealers, remember, that's the gospel. Let's talk, we, we got to keep that in mind as we go. John's talking about the whole of the gospel. But what we're going to talk about today is what I've highlighted in yellow, and it's all throughout. Okay, so remember, John doesn't write necessarily in like sequential, logical, because this, then this, then this format. John uses more of an Eastern form of writing, where he's just like circling around a couple of ideas, and he just keeps coming back to them more and more. And they're, they're all in here, but he just kind of circles around them in different ways and different times. Some of those ideas are, are written throughout his whole epistle here on God is light. Uh, he's talking about holiness, about right living before God. He talks about how God is the truth. He talks about how God is love, Right? And so, therefore, those are like the key bedrock principles of the Christian faith. And again, as we said last week, John is, this, this reads like a sermon in 1 John. The whole book reads like a sermon. And he has reason for writing it, but he's not, he doesn't really tease it out too much. Instead, what he does is he just wants to focus on the main things of being a Christian. He says, if you're a follower of Jesus, in most of John's writing, it's pretty consistent. Like, these are the simple things that you have to do. These bedrock principles that this means. That if you're a Christian, love. <laughs> love like Jesus loves. Right? New command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, John writes in his gospel of what Jesus has said. Right? 
So he just focuses on these main principles, that in Jesus is life, eternal life, that he is the source of our life. And so we need to abide in him and just remain in him. And that's through faith in him that we do so. So he just kind of circles on these big ideas. And this we need. We need to hear in our Western world. We said it last week. We're going to keep saying it, that we tend, with all of our knowledge and learning and how we value knowledge so much in our culture, which is a good thing, we tend to overcomplicate it. We overcomplicate the faith. And we can very easily make the faith all about how much you know the deeper intrinsic, or like the deep truths of the scriptures, right? That nobody's really arguing about. This was my life in seminary, okay? And why I keep bringing this up is because I'm prone to do this as well, right? We tend to, make, tend to make the faith about knowing all of those deeper truths, and that's good. But what John reminds us of is hey, like those truths are good to know, and it's good to have all that knowledge, but not at the expense of love. <laughs> Not at the expense of some of these basic principles of living the Christian life. All right, so what he's going to do in these verses that I've highlighted in yellow is just kind of circle around these ideas that we'll tease out together. But he writes uh, what we, we talked about, what was from the beginning last week. And here he says, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, uh, what we have observed. I'll come back to that one later. I didn't include that in yellow for a reason. Uh, we'll come back to it. And have touched with our hands, he said. Okay, so Jesus here, he's t- remember, he's talking, or John is talking about the gospel of Jesus that's centered on the person of Jesus in the incarnate Christ, in the meaning of the incarnate Christ. But what John is reminding his audience of here is, hey, guys, like, we've heard him. Like, we've seen him. We have touched him with our hands, right? Jesus was a real incarnate person that we have experienced, Moving on. I'm going to get ahead of myself. It says, And the life was revealed, and we have seen it, and we testify. He says. This seeing and testifying, these are courtroom terms, right? In the first century, just as they are today. But testify has become such a churchy word that when we think of testify, uh, I don't know about you, but I grew up in the church, so my mind tends to go to the church. But it's also a courtroom term today, right? Somebody's called to the stand to testify as to what they saw or heard. And just as in the first century, just as in the first century today, testimony is an important piece of discerning the truth of a court case, court case where there's a dispute on what actually happened. Calling people into the stand who have eyewitness accounts or eyewitness testimony of what happened is an important part of discerning the truth. And that's what John is saying here. So we've seen it, and so we testify to it. We've seen this life revealed. We've seen the incarnate Christ. And so we've walked with him. We've experienced him. And so we know. We're, we're a good witness, is what he's saying. Because likely already in the first century here, the church, had, uh, the church had begun to develop some false ideas, some false teachers had come into the church, and then they had gone out from the church, as we'll see in just a moment. He says, again, in verse 3, what we have seen and heard. He keeps emphasizing this again and again and again and again, right? This is how John writes. He circles around it a bunch of times. And when we read it in our Western world, we're like, okay, I get it, right? (laughs) It's redundant. But remember, in the first century, writing materials were expensive and costly. So not everybody had a 
book or a scroll in this day and age right in front of them to read and reread and study and go over again and again. Most of this uh, was heard. Somebody would declare it, would preach it, is how their like, primary way of learning. And so they had to hear these things over and over again to get the emphasis that John was making. What he's emphasizing here is a couple of core truths. Number one is that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was incarnated and took on human flesh. The apostles, they saw him, they touched him, right? They heard him, they experienced him, the incarnate Christ. John's likely doing this because he's writing, again, John doesn't really go into the alternative beliefs that he's writing against that the people of the churches he's writing to were believing. But it's most likely that it was some early form of what's called Gnosticism, this uh, early heresy in the church that really sprang up in the, into the second century, which is too early for John. So it's likely an earlier form of that as it was taking seeds and starting to take root. Right, This Gnostic belief that's really rooted in some uh, syncretistic ideas of the Greek culture merging with Christianity. He doesn't exactly tease it out too much, but he says in 2.19 that a group that he calls Antichrists, they have gone out from them, likely referring to a group that has left the church. And that's part of the reason why he's writing, is that the group was still trying to influence the church and get them to leave and believe in their false theology as well. And then in 1 John 4, he tells them to test the spirits. Any spirit that doesn't confess that Jesus Christ came in the flesh is not from God. So the early Gnostics, they likely were believing that Jesus wasn't actually human, that he just appeared to be human. Because in the Greek thought, one of the most prevalent ideas in the Greek world was that the spiritual was good, the physical was bad, was evil. Right? So the incarnation, what we're celebrating in Christmas, refutes that idea on its face. Right? So the Greeks don't like that. They're saying, no, 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 he can't actually be physical, material in nature. God can't become flesh because the flesh is bad. And when Paul talks about the flesh, that's not what he means. He doesn't mean our material nature. He means our sinful nature. Okay? He's talking about that part of us that is in rebellion against God, that just refuses and doesn't want to do God's will and what God says. So what John is writing to here is refute this idea, most likely, that Spiritual is good, the material is evil, and the Greeks were saying, no, 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 Jesus couldn't have possibly come in the flesh to be a real human person. He must have just appeared to be like that. Because certainly, gods don't take on human flesh, but gods also don't suffer and die. It's like, that can't be. So the Greeks' thought was blending with Christian thought in the early church. And John's saying now, <laughs> like, he was physical. He was material. We saw him. We heard him. We touched him. Some of this bad theology even remains today, where we, we tend to have that similar sense that the spiritual is good and the material is bad. And we tend to think of eternity or salvation, then, as escaping the physical world into heaven, whatever your sense of heaven might be, and so we want to escape this world and get away from it. And the sense is that then it'll all burn, right? Like God will destroy it in the end. 
Whereas the, new, the, the teaching of the New Testament isn't necessarily that. It's that Jesus has a resurrected body, which is different, but it's still physical, right? And it's not that we're escaping creation. It's that God's going to make creation new, okay? So these ideas still exist in subtle, more subtle ways in our culture today. And the gospel still refutes them. So the physical, material world is not bad. It's not evil. It's being renewed. God is making it new. Secondly, one of John's main ideas that he's trying to communicate with this is, again, that the apostles were eyewitnesses of Jesus' incarnation, his life, teaching, his death, and his resurrection. So he's trying to say is that their testimony is credible. John has planted churches. He's likely writing this around 90 to 95 AD. So already, <laughs> this early in the church, uh, there were distortions of the apostles' teaching that John is trying to refute. And he's trying to say, hey, guys, like, don't, you've believed our message. Like, don't believe these, these other distortions of the truth. We were eyewitnesses of it. Okay. We'll come back to that later when we apply it. All right. There's one line here that we skipped in verse 1. John writes, what we have observed. Okay, so you'll notice he says, what we have seen with our eyes. And then John can be redundant, we know this. But then he says, what we have observed. Okay, so he uses a different word here uh, for observed, other than the word above for seen. Okay. So this second verb, it can also mean to perceive something above and beyond what is merely seen with the eye. Okay, so say it again. It means to perceive something above and beyond what is merely seen with the eye. So you're saying, like, we've seen something but now we've understood something greater about what we have seen. Okay, does that make sense? So this second verb, what John is implying is that they've not only seen Jesus in the physical sense, but they've perceived the true theology, the theological meaning of Jesus' incarnation, his life, his death, and his resurrection. So to tease this out more, I get it, this is kind of strange, Okay. Uh, John has heard Jesus' teaching, and I think I like the word perceived better than observed there, because observed has, whatever, you know what I mean. So John heard Jesus' teachings, but he's perceived that Jesus has the words of eternal life. Okay, see the difference there? Like, I can hear his teachings, but still not know that he has the words of eternal life and trust his teachings are true. So what John is saying is, I've perceived that these are true. And so... Then, because of that perception, hearing it, perceiving it, he surrenders his life to Jesus' lordship and his teachings, even when it doesn't make sense in our, in our mind, right? Lose your life for me and you'll find it. What? <laughs> Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Nobody does that, right? But in order to actually live that out, you have to not only hear Jesus say that, but perceive it to be the words of eternal life and to be true, and then follow it, right? John saw Jesus perform miracles, so he saw the miracle, but that's not enough. He perceived that Jesus is then the Son of God and Lord of all creation. The Word made flesh, John says. John saw Jesus died on the cross, then he perceived that Jesus died on the cross as a propitiation for our sins, meaning that he took the wrath of the Father for us and died in our place that we could be made free. 
And he says as much in, John, in 1 John 2, 2 and 1 John 4, 10. He saw that Jesus rose from the dead, but he perceived then that in him is the resurrection and the life. And so that there is no other eternal life, and that by believing in him, by abiding in him, we can participate in that resurrection life with him. Okay, I think I belabored this. <laughs> but you get it, right? It's not just enough to see the events and to admit that those events have taken place. There are theological truths that we must believe along with those events. Make sense? Okay, we'll come back and apply that again later. Then he goes on, and he says this in a number of different ways. We have seen, we have testified, and declare to you. Verse 3, we also declare to you. So John sees, he perceives, and then he declares it as a member of the apostles. Declares, heralds that not only the truths that he has seen, but also the truths that he has perceived. And that's what 1 John is all about is these theological truths that are quite basic to the Christian faith, that are so central to it, but these are things that are perceived from what has happened in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. All right, here's our big idea. It's wordy. <laughs> we'll tease it out more. There's a lot of pieces to this. Because in these, like, this, what I hope you guys are seeing is that Scripture comes alive for you, okay? In these few verses that are so redundant that we just tend to read over really quick and be like, oh, cool, John said the same thing a lot in a lot of different ways. He's saying a lot with this, all right? He's saying a lot, and I barely even have time to go through all of it. In fact, I don't. It's mostly in the devotional, all right? The apostles are the authoritative source on the life revealed, so we can then entrust our lives to the truths in Scripture, Okay? So it's not just the, so there's, there's a lot here, okay. The apostles, let's tease it out. Let's tease it out a little bit. The apostles are the authoritative source on the life revealed, that is the gospel message, and so we can then entrust our lives to the truths in Scripture. There's a lot there. Let's tease this out a little bit. Okay, first, the incarnation is a bedrock principle of the gospel. Remember, John's saying over and over again, We've seen him, we've heard him, we've touched him. It's not like the apostles woke up one day and decided, like, you know what would be really easy to convince the Jews and the Greeks of? Is that there's only one God in three persons and that he took on human form, <laughs> right? That's like anathema to both of them, <laughs> right? The incarnation in and of itself, we've already said that the Greeks would hear that and they would say, nope, we're out. <laughs> Just on its face. Like, they don't get past... Uh, John 1. They don't get past Luke 1. Matthew 1 and 2. They don't get past those without saying, like, no, nah, this is wrong. Right? <laughs> the Jews as well. In fact, this is why they tried to kill Jesus, is because he claimed to be God. That's blasphemy. Right? And so... <laughs> I'm going to get ahead of myself. All right, we'll wait. <laughs> but the incarnation is one of these bedrock principles of the gospel. And what this also means is that there is no sense in which 
We can agree with the Greeks, popular Greek culture of the day, and say that the spiritual is good and the physical is bad. This has been not an explicit teaching, but kind of a, a subtle kind of teaching that has crept into the evangelical world, as I've already teased out a little bit, is that the physical is bad, and so we tend to devalue our bodies, devalue the physical world. We tend to devalue uh, creation as a whole. This plays out in things like creation care and in our mission strategies where we tend to, there's always the debate in church circles of like, if we do missions work, do we just go and share the gospel or do we go and take care of people's needs? Uh, and I think part of the answer that has been so prominent in evangelical church culture that leads us to say, oh, we just go and share the gospel to care for their eternity, which is good and true, 100%, right? Is, and even at the cost of the neglect of like caring for others' spirit, physical needs, is part of that theology has crept into our, our way of thinking, is that the physical is less than the spiritual, right? But because of the incarnation, we can say that, no, God is making all things new, and so we should do both. <laughs> Why can't we do both? Why can't we care for people's physical needs and share the gospel? I think so much of that in the missions world is just built on the, the missions trip approach of like, I'm just going to go for a week, and then that's my missions work. Whereas I think the predominant view in the biblical sense is you live among the people you're, you're ministering to. And you're sharing the gospel with them so you can do both. You can, it's not like you have a, a couple of days and you got to get this in. You can only choose one. Now, in our life as missionaries for the gospel of Jesus, and I'm going to bring this out at the end as well, that we should do what John is doing here, that we can care for people's needs and also share the gospel at the same time. And so if the incarnation is a bedrock principle of the gospel, then we can't devalue the physical at the expense of the spiritual. They're both. They're both valuable to God because Jesus took on flesh. Second, the apostles are still the authoritative source of the gospel. Okay, this means that the Bible's really important. Right? Like, bottom line, the Bible's really important. Because in the New Testament, we have the apostolic witness about Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. John is very keen here on reminding his audience that he was an eyewitness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Before we had video evidence, which you can't really even trust video evidence anymore today because of deep fakes, right? Um, before we had DNA evidence, like eyewitness testimony was the most conclusive. The eyewitness testimony of two or three witnesses was how matters were decided in courts. And part of, and it still is important today, so part of, I think, this discerning of truth, which we're going to get at next, this discerning of truth is understanding the credibility of the eyewitness accounts. And in order to kind of assess the credibility of eyewitness accounts, we have to ask simply, what do the eyewitnesses have to gain by lying? Right? It's an important question. What do these eyewitnesses have to gain by lying? And we've already teased this out a little bit, but... 
the apostles had next to nothing to gain for their life by lying about this if they weren't telling the truth about Jesus. The Romans, okay, simply saying Jesus is Lord or Jesus is the Son of God was putting their life at risk to the Romans because Caesar was said to be Lord, because Caesar was said to be the Son of God. So by making this claim, the apostles are saying Jesus is of a higher lordship than Caesar, the most powerful man in the world of that day. And so to put yourself at odds with him meant that you're probably going to get killed, right? And most of them did. The apostle Paul, Peter, were both executed, martyred in Rome. Saying that God took on human flesh is anathema to both Jews and to Greeks. It pretty much ostracized them from their whole community of faith. Ten of the remaining 11 disciples were martyred. So there's not much to gain by lying about this, right? The old saying, liars make for poor martyrs, I think, gives the gospel so much credibility. If you're lying about something, you're in Rome, and they say, we're going to hang you on a cross if you don't tell us the truth. And Peter says, no, hang me upside down <laughs> so I don't die in the same way as my Lord. These guys are telling the truth so we can trust it. And what's at stake here is the truth. We live in a world in which truth seems so elusive. Social media, misinformation campaigns, deep fakes in political parties make it so that we can't trust even our own eyes when we're watching videos. Institutions, they've lost so much credibility. Institutions used to be the stalwarts of truth in culture. They've lost a lot of their credibility. So we don't know who to trust anymore as people. And so what we tend to do broadly as a culture is we just trust ourselves. We'll do our own research. We trust ourselves. Christians. We need to be good stewards of truth, who have the truth. Jesus claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. And so, Christians, we need to be good stewards of truth because we steward the ultimate truth. We steward the truth of the gospel, and we're called to herald this truth. So this means, first and foremost, that our faith is on solid ground, right? That the apostles were good eyewitnesses of this truth, and we can we have their testimony, and so we should constantly go back to Scripture as our source of truth. This also means that we, as witnesses who are called to declare this truth, need to be good stewards of not only this truth of the gospel, but also all truth. Because when we promote lies, when we're so easily deceived, that inevitably affects our witness to the truth of the gospel to our broader culture. So what's at stake is truth. I feel like our culture is very much like Pilate in this exchange between Jesus and John 18, 37 and 38. When Pilate is interviewing Jesus, he says, you are a king then. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. 
In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Jesus says the reason he was born and came into the world was to testify to the truth. Jesus says there's lots of reasons why he was incarnated, but one of them was to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Jesus, Jesus said that, all right? <laughs> Jesus says everyone who's on the side of truth listens to me. So Jesus, the scriptures are our, authority, our authoritative truth. And then Pilate, he says, what is truth? With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there. And he said, I find no basis for charge against him. Our culture today reminds me a lot of Pilate. Just walking away, saying, what is truth? We, we can't know truth. There's too much information out there. There's too much misinformation. We're overwhelmed. What is truth? And so Pilate did what was expedient for him. He says, what is truth? Like, regardless of what is true or not, like, I, I got to save my own skin, is what Pilate's doing here. Like, Caesar is the most powerful person in the world, so regardless of what's true or not, I'm going to do what makes him happy, because if I don't, my neck is on the line too. And what makes Caesar happy is not having to put down another rebellion in Jerusalem. So Jesus, you got to die, right? So at the expense of truth, Pilate just went with what was expedient and convenient for him. That's where so many in our culture are today. Just like, we can't know what's true, so I'm just going to believe what I want to believe. Whatever makes my life easier, I'm going to do that. The problem is the gospel doesn't make your life easier necessarily. It often makes your life harder. Again, those who lose their life for my sake will find it? What? Do we really trust that that's true? To love our enemies, even our political enemies, and pray for those who persecute us? Do we really believe that that's true? That doesn't necessarily make life easier. That's harder to do. To lay our lives down for one another, to love like Jesus loved us, that's how he loved us. Not just being kind to people in order to get what you want out of them. That's not the love that Jesus has for us. So oftentimes it makes it harder. But if Jesus, the Gospels, are our authoritative truth, then we'll commit to that, regardless of whether it makes our life more expedient or not. And church, we have a real opportunity to witness to the truth in a culture that says we, we can't know, so I'm just going to choose whatever I want. To witness for the truth of Jesus and to live it with humility and all the grace and love that Christ calls us to. So we must be good stewards of the truth to do so. And then thirdly, if the gospel is the life revealed, then it is the truth. And so Christians, what are we going to build our life on? Are we going to build our life on the truth that the apostles, as the authoritative source of the gospel, have taught us? Or are we going to build our life on some other truth? As we talked about in our last campaign, we have the truth of salvation, of how we're made right with God that our sin is done away with so that we can be in the presence of God. We have the truth of morality of how we ought to live in Scripture. We have the truth of our destiny of where it's all headed. We have the truth of our identity in our origin, in our meaning. We have that truth so we can live it. So why would we live for a different truth? Let's build our life on the truth of the gospel.
And that means we aren't going to build our lives on other sources of ultimate truth, like medicine. All truth is God's truth. Medicine has a lot of good things to say, but we're not building our life on that truth, right? Don't build your life on your political ideology, your political ideas. Again, have them, but not the ultimate source that you're building your life on. You have a higher truth in the gospel. Don't build your life on your parenting. Don't build your life on your ideas of success. Build your life on the truth of the gospel. Because in the gospel we have the truth. Next. It's not enough to just believe the historical facts about Jesus. We must also trust the theological truths as well. Again, these statements, Jesus lived around the first century, he died on a cross, he was buried, he rose again on the third day, all true, all true. Those are the core of the gospel, those are at the heart of the gospel. But those are the things that are seen. What must we perceive from those things? That in the incarnation, Jesus took on flesh. So then his teaching is the authoritative teaching on, on my life and how I'm going to live is built on the teaching of Jesus. Primarily, his teaching to love one another as he has loved us. Jesus died on a cross. That's what we've seen. What we must perceive is that he died on the cross for my sins and took my sin upon himself and died in my place so that I could be set free. His death paid the penalty for my sins so that by faith in Jesus, my sins are removed from me. Jesus rose from the dead. That you can see what you must believe is that then by my faith and trust in him, I have the eternal life that Jesus has. That because he is the resurrection and the life, when I have faith in him, that I also have that resurrection life in Jesus. Now, on this it's important to note that we don't have to have perfect theology in everything. Okay, <laughs> We're talking about the core truths of the gospel here. There are lots of things that the apostles were less than clear on and those we can still discern, do our best to come to the truth of, but hold with an open hand. Finally, in band, you guys can come and get set up here. Follow John's example of seeing, perceiving, and declaring. John saw, heard, touched Jesus. Christian life begins first with exploring the incarnation. If you're at this phase where you're still exploring Christ, you're like, I don't know if Jesus, these theological truths that you're talking about are true or not. Read the Gospels. Start there. Who is Jesus? Experience him. Get to know him. His life, his death, his resurrection. What he taught, what he said. Is that true? Is he true? And then perceiving. Must believe that those theological truths are indeed true that encounter with their incarnate Christ of his life, his death and resurrection. What is true based on that? It's theological truths that we must believe in order to be saved. That I just went through. That he died on the cross, but he died on the cross for my sins. That what he taught is authoritative over my life. That he is Lord of all creation and my life as well. We must believe those things to be true. And then finally, we must declare it, like John is doing, declaring the truth of the gospel. If we believe this truth of the gospel, 
It's our responsibility to declare it, not only to people who don't know Jesus, but also to one another, because we so easily forget. We so easily forget that the resurrection means Jesus is making all things new. (laughs) So we readily forget that the incarnation means that the physical world has value. And so we should love and care for one another. We should care about our physical needs. And we need to speak these truths to each other. Because so often, as Christians, we just forget them. Our lives get misaligned from them. And so we must declare them. And that's exactly what John is doing throughout this whole book, is declaring to Christians, guys, these are the basic truths that we must live in. Jesus came in the flesh. God is light. In him there is no darkness, and so we should live in holiness. He is the truth. And he is love. And we ought to love one another as he has loved us. We need to remind ourselves of these truths. So Lord, God, we thank you that you were incarnated, which we celebrate on Christmas, this mystery of the incarnation, so that, Lord, the apostles experienced you. They have seen, they have tasted, they have touched, they have heard you. And so, Lord, they have tasted that you are good. And so, Lord, we can trust that their words are true. We can trust that the scripture is true about you because their testimony is good. And Lord, your truth is the truth to build our lives on. So Lord, would you draw us to our attention when we're building our life on a truth that is not the gospel, when we have made another truth foundational and it has taken the place that only the gospel should. Draw our eyes to that, Lord. Would you convict your people Draw us into holiness before you. Draw us into devotion to you and to you first and foremost, Lord. Because you, Jesus, are the life revealed. And there's nobody like you. And in that gospel that you came to reveal, Lord, we find the truth, the truth that is worth building all of our life on. It's giving all of ourselves to. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing praises to our Savior together.